The scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves without fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Good morning. All right, we're good to go. Let me pray for us real quick, and then we can get to work. Father in heaven, we come before you, and we just pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning and grab our hearts. We ask, Lord, that your truth would shape our minds and that you would give us yeah, the foundation as we see it to pursue holiness, because you are holy. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start off by asking you a question. Does God love you? Children, this one goes to you. Does God love you? Teens, This one I'm not so sure about. Back when you were kids, you were cute, but now it's not so cute anymore, is it? But anyway, I'll ask the question, does God love you? Adults of all stripes, does God love you? If you're discerning, I think you might know where I'm going with this. I'm not really so much questioning Whether or not God actually loves you, we know that's true. The real question I'm asking is, are you convinced that God loves you? Or does that falter from time to time? Sometimes, yeah, I really experience that. Sometimes, quite frankly, it's actually difficult to really imagine that God would love me the way that he says he does. And this is an important question. If you're wondering, oh no, this is a mushy-gushy sermon, isn't it? It's not. But it is important. The reality is that the love of other people really does impact us, and it changes our life drastically. How much more so for a heavenly Father, an almighty God, 
who loves his children. Grasping the love of God and living in that conviction and experience really does change everything. It changes the way you approach everything. And yet, it's something that we struggle with. Perhaps it's because in Genesis 3, at the fall of mankind, Satan comes up to Adam and Eve, and what does he do? He asks them, did God actually say? This may seem unassuming or disconnected from my point here, but Tim Keller makes this point. He suggests that when you peel this back a little bit more, what Satan is actually doing is he's planting the seed of doubt in the minds of Adam and Eve about the goodness of God. Is God really good? Is he really for you? Is he really a loving, heavenly father? Or is he a tyrant that just wants to control and manipulate your life and tell you what you can and can't do? So I think at the core of what it means to be a sinner includes, as part of the package deal, a built-in doubt system of, is God really good? Is he really for me? And the answer to that, as we all know, is yes. But what we're talking about is knowing that in an experiential way. And knowing that will change everything. Peter commands Christians to be holy. And perhaps the most important thing that I can say about this is that holiness is primarily something that begins with what we know instead of what we do. Primarily, holiness originates and begins and starts and finds its foundation in what we know, and particularly God's love. That's kind of where I'm going this morning. Now, this might seem a little bit surprising to you or difficult to comprehend because most Christians think about holiness, and when they think about holiness... They think about it in terms of actions and behaviors, right, that we can and can't do. Can I do this? Can I push the line to this far? We think about it in terms of actions and behaviors, and it's good and right to think about holiness in terms of the behavior and attitude that characterizes the way we live our lives in every area. But more particularly, I want to suggest that holiness and our pursuit of holiness is grounded in at least a few things that we need to know. One of them is knowing where we are headed. The second one is knowing who we are. And the third one is knowing the holiness of God and knowing the love of God. And I think it's upon knowing these things in an experiential way that drives and forms the foundation for our pursuit of becoming holy people. Now, before we get to that, I want to just take a little bit of time to describe what holiness actually is. 
When Peter talks about being holy, he's talking about being set apart, right? In this case, he's talking about being holy as opposed to being conformed to the passions of their former ignorance, right? Being holy is, as Peter has in mind, includes the person's behavior, it includes their attitudes, it includes their priorities, it includes perhaps their thinking, their values, or their character that reflect their heavenly Father. And as they become like God in every way, they are set apart and distinguished from the rest of the world around them. Now in this passage, Peter is contrasting the experience of these particular believers from the time that they they did, did not know God with the time that they now know God. He's comparing before God, after they know God. Now, these are three of the characteristics that I see in this passage that Peter describes them or characterizes them before they actually come into a knowledge of God. And the first one, shouldn't be any surprise, is that they are ignorant. He calls them living lives of ignorance, right? That's what he says. He isn't saying, now what does he mean by ignorance? He's not saying that they're educationally challenged or lacking intelligence in any way. He says that their ignorance refers to the time that they did not know God, including who he is, what he is like, or how to respond to him. A second thing that characterizes them is that they are ruled by the desires of the flesh, that they are ruled by the passions. Peter tells us that the life of ignorance is ultimately governed by their passions, which means that it is the desires of their flesh. Without God in the picture, the highest ruling authority that a person naturally submits to is their own desires. One of the biblical counselor trainers that I've been kind of learning from over the last couple of years has a famous saying, I do what I do because I want what I want. Before God comes into the picture, the highest ruling authority is my desire. This is why our culture, as it slips further and further away from being ruled by God, it seems actually plausible. It seems like a good idea to legislate the murder of children. Why? So that women can have the freedom and the right to live however they want. Ruled by passions. It is why marriage and gender is being redefined in order to accommodate any and every impulse of sexual expression. We're becoming a culture even that is ruled by passions, by the desires of the flesh. And before you know God, if you live in ignorance, the highest governing authority of your life is your desire. And third... And it's funny that, Jordan, you would say what you said because, wow, he stole my thunder. Actually, you helped me my cause. Um, this is exactly what Jordan was saying, Pastor Jordan. They are governed by the futile ways inherited from their forefathers. Peter tells his readers that the other governing authority of those who do not know God is that they are controlled by their traditions, by their experience, or by their genetics. And in a large sense, this is the sin nature that they have inherited. 
but more practically, it could be their religious expression. It could be, in our sense, characterized by saying things like, you don't know my father, I was raised by an angry parent, therefore I'm angry. Right? It's really hard for me to be nice because my personality that I got at birth just won't allow it. It's not going to be a nice person. Or it could be something like, my experience growing up makes it really hard for me to do this or be this kind of way. They are ruled by the futile ways that are inherited. Essentially, they're ruled by the past. And it is interesting that our culture kind of puts these three things together if you think about godless culture. Ruled by flesh and ruled by desires, and then it's justified by, hey, it's their past, right? What would you expect them to do? Naturally, they would act this way. What Peter suggests in this passage is that knowing God, which I think climaxes in knowing his love, not only changes everything, but it forms the basis of our holiness. It changes your identity, knowing God does. It changes the way that your past affects you. It, re- it changes your relationship to your past. It changes the way that your future now looks. And it changes the way that your life and your identity is perceived right now in the present. Right? So in this, Peter calls the believers to be holy, but he also tells them how to become holy. He doesn't just say, be holy. He shows us, this is how you become holy. This is how you become set apart. Now remember that Peter is writing to believers who are facing isolation and the temptation to renounce their faith in Christ and due to cultural pressures around them, which are very anti-Christian. This is, this is why, this is, um, in this we see the need to be set apart for the sake of Christian witness, but we also see Peter addressing the propensity of people. You see, what he's teaching us is that you're either on, it's a, it's a two-way street. You're either progressing towards holiness or you are regressing to your former way that is defined by the passions of your flesh and the futility that is inherited by your forefathers, right? It's, it's, a, it's one or the other. You're either going towards holiness or you are backsliding and becoming more like your former self before you knew God. There is no middle ground. You see, this neutrality, I'm just kind of stuck in a pattern or whatever, I'm just not really growing, that's actually kind of an illusion, right? You're never just neutral. You're never just kind of hanging out. You're either going forward with God or you're sliding backwards. It's one or the other. So therefore, Peter needs to do more than just tell them to be holy. He must show them how to become holy. So the first thing that you need to know that I present to you You need to know where you are going, right? You need to know where you're going. You need to know your future hope. He says in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Now, before Peter actually tells them to be holy, he commands, to set, he commands them to set their hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed or brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So last week we talked about hope and how it's not in the realm of possibility. Biblical hope is not referring to what might happen. Biblical hope is certainty. It's rooted in fact that will happen, right? So he tells them, look at this hope and set your minds on that or uh, prepare your minds for action. So he says right off the bat, prepare your minds for action. Now I want to ask the question, what is the action that you're supposed to prepare your minds for? What's the action? And in this passage, it tells us the action that you are preparing your minds for, getting yourself ready for battle, is to set your hope fully on the grace that is going to be revealed. So what he's saying is, your battle plan, your action plan, what you need to prepare yourself to do is set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed. Now, being honest, how many of you spend concentrated time thinking about the hope that is yours and the grace that is going to be revealed? You can see that this is something that we need to take seriously and that we need to do on purpose. It's a discipline. Now, it's a fact that uh, Jesus has appeared once. It's a fact that he has raised from the dead. It is a fact that he is going to reappear, that he is going to come back and gather his bride. So Peter says that sober-mindedness, and this gets back to what what I was just saying, Peter says that sober-mindedness or self-control. When he says sober-mindedness there, it can also be translated self-control, a kind of disciplining. He says that's the way we prepare our minds. So we prepare our minds for action, the action being setting our hope. And what he's actually saying, though, is that you need to be disciplined in this. You need to actually control Because naturally, if you guys are being honest, naturally, most times, your thinking does not go to the grace that is going to be revealed to you. Where does your mind typically go? Problems, worries, doubt, whatever it might be. A whole host of things that causes you to get stressed out and worried and filled with anxiety. So he says... Be self-controlled. Be disciplined to actually prepare your minds to think about the hope or the grace that is going to be yours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that's amazing. Christianity can easily be mistaken as a religion based on feeling when in fact it is a religion that is based, if not equally so, maybe more so, on thinking. We tend to think of Christianity as a religion that's based on feeling. But in reality, it's a religion that is based on thinking. Prepare your minds. The reason why you were cut off from God or the reason why you were living a certain way is because you were ignorant of God. Prepare your minds. Peter is calling believers to discipline their thinking according to the truth of God's word. (laughs) Do you realize, brothers and sisters, If you 
Discipline yourself to think about the truth of God's word. You will protect yourself from the lies of the devil. You will protect yourself from the lies that aren't true. You will protect yourself in a thousand ways as you meditate on the truth and the truth that gives you life. So be disciplined to think about the grace that is going to be yours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And by so doing, the reality of Jesus' return will shape your conduct in the present. Knowing what is coming to you will have an impact in the present. So you must know where you're going. You need to know where you're going. You need to know who you are, number two. You need to know who you are. As obedient children, right? Obedience, contrasting, living by the passions of your flesh. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also, you also be holy in your conduct, in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Why should I be holy? Because God your Father is holy. Now, before God is a part of the equation, humanity is ruled by the passions of their flesh, but now they're ruled by obedience as children of the Heavenly Father. Peter bases the pursuit of holiness as a natural response to who you are. Do you know who you are? Do you know that you are a child of the living God? In other words, what he's saying is you should be holy because you now belong to God and you should become like him. It's like going to a monkey and saying, you should be a monkey because you were born of a monkey. That makes good sense, doesn't it? Going to a human, you should be a human because you were born of a human. It's that natural. You should be holy. Why? Because you belong to God. This is who you are. You should take on the, the characteristics of God. You should think the way God thinks. You should prioritize what God prioritizes. This is just natural. And as you become like God, who bought you and who made you his, you become increasingly set apart and holy. You must know who you are. You need to know that you are loved. You need to know God's holiness and you need to know his love in light of that. Number three. And this is getting us into the heart of the issue here. Now, knowledge is good for a lot of things. And I think that what the kind of knowledge that Peter is talking about goes beyond facts and information. Because really what we're wrestling with is transformation. How do you actually become changed? Because sometimes when you think you should be holy, that sounds like a heavy burden, doesn't it? And you might realize, boy, I don't have it in me to actually pull that off. So the real question here is, how does one get transformed? And what I'm suggesting here is that knowing the love of God helps that and makes that possible. You see, we live in a day and age that suggests that information is a kind of savior. And this is probably especially true for young people. We tend to think of our human problem and our human obstacle is that we just don't have enough information that's available to us. But now that we have Google, right, 
I can just find information and access information about anything, and therefore I can overcome all of the obstacles that I might face. And in that way, information is kind of, in our day, viewed as a sort of savior. But Peter actually says, uh, no, that doesn't, it's, uh, that's not the way it works. Because here's the thing. Science cannot replace God in the way that people use science today. Because information on itself does not simply lead to transformation. And I know that this is true. And this might come as a surprise to some of you, but here's an example. And what I'm trying to help you understand is that information can take you so far, but it cannot actually bring you home and cause you to turn a corner. McDonald's. How many of you eat at McDonald's? I won't even make you raise your hand and confess publicly. Okay, is there information that says McDonald's is toxic, fattening, and it will kill you if you eat it for 30 days straight? Yet that doesn't stop people from eating it. If that information was turned out to its logical conclusion, nobody would eat it. Right? Can I get an amen on that? (laughs) I know who you are. I'll pray for you. (laughs) But if you're one of those self-righteous people who actually doesn't eat at McDonald's... uh, That was a jab, because I know many of you actually hung that up. There might be something else. There might be other information that's scientifically proven that helps you understand that it's bad or wrong. Let's take worry and anxiety, for example. There's scientific fact and information that proves that worry and anxiety is actually bad for you. But does that information actually help you stop worrying? No. In fact, it might actually increase your worry. I'm stressed out and worried about my anxiety. (laughs) Information is helpful, but it cannot bring you home. It does not lead you to transformation. This is what Peter says. Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing, knowing, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, there's one exception to information leading to transformation. It's when information includes everything that Peter just shared right here. And in this case, Peter's not talking about a matter of fact. I know the facts. He's talking about, do you experience it? Are you convinced of it? 
Here's a few points to consider in being ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. Here's what the precious blood of Christ has to say. The precious blood of Christ helps us to realize that we are much worse than we could ever want to admit and we're much more hopeless than we could ever imagine. That doesn't sound like a very loving thing to say. It is because it's the truth. And when God speaks the truth to us, it's his manifestation of love to you. He comes in and says, this is who you are. Your situation is much worse and it's much more bleak because of my holiness and because of the standard to which I will call you and because I am a faithful father and judge who will judge impartially You're much worse than you ever could want to admit, and you're much more hopeless than you could ever imagine. In fact, the precious blood looks at us and says that our situation was so bleak and so utterly helpless that it required the precious value of Christ's blood. You couldn't just throw gold and silver out there to fix this problem. It requires the precious blood of Jesus. And to the extent that the payment was precious, it says something about the nature of the problem. And I'm going to flesh this out a little bit more. In a minute, I think you'll see why this is amazing love that Peter or that, that Peter would help us or the cross helps us to see that we're much worse than we actually think. But in light of that, the flip side is also true. The precious blood of Christ helps us to realize that believers are more valuable to God than we could ever imagine and more precious to him than we could ever understand. So both are true. You're much worse than you actually think, and you're much more loved than you could ever know. This is what John Paul II had to say. The blood of Christ shows how precious man is in God's eyes and how priceless the value of his life. How precious must man be in the eyes of the Creator if he gained so great a Redeemer? So you're much worse and you're much more hopeless than you could ever imagine and you are much more precious than you could ever understand. Facing the holy judge presents a problem to you that is way beyond your pay grade. And yet God in his infinite mercy and wisdom and love has come and not only fixed the problem, but he has wrapped his arms around you and said, you are mine. You are precious. He points his finger at you and says, that one, I want that one. But they're broken and they're damaged and they're offensive to you and they have rebelled against you. I want that one. They will be mine I will show them my infinite love and my infinite mercy and I will take their situation of hopelessness and give them a hope 
that will never end. This is the the amazing love that God spells out for his believers. Christ, the, the precious blood of Christ spells out the measureless love of God towards you. Now I want you to realize what this means. It means something very important for you and for us as we think about becoming holy and knowing his love. It means that you can accept yourself for who you are, for who you truly are. Because God already has. You see, one of the ways that we refuse to accept the reality of ourselves is by hiding behind the futility that we inherited from our forefathers. This is kind of what Pastor Jordan was alluding to earlier. And I think to the extent that we hide behind the futility that we have inherited, we miss the love of God. We miss embracing him in all of his forgiving work and encountering him as a holy God. What do I mean by hiding behind the futility that is inherited by our forefathers? We minimize our sin. I'm really not that bad. Or it isn't my fault. If you would just know my family background, you would understand why I am the way that I am. I'm stuck in this rut. My past is the reason why I am this way. My upbringing or my personality or my genetic disposition or the experiences that I've had, that's what has left me this way. Beloved, Peter is telling us something very profound. He's saying that God knows the depths of your sin and he still accepts you. Thus, not only can you go to God, you must go to him. And you must go to him in honesty of who you truly are. Not playing the game that I am really better than I think that I am. I'm not really not all that bad. I'm just going to go to God to, for him to give me what I want. We must go to him in all of your weaknesses in order to know the truth about yourself. And when you come to understand the truth about yourself in light of God, you start to understand the holiness of God you start to understand the love, the mercy, the forgiveness, the immeasurable love of God. You see, you can't truly understand the full nature of God until you really understand the depths of your sin. And vice versa, until you understand or until you understand the holiness and the love of God, you can't really understand who you really are before him. But in that interaction, knowing self, knowing God, you come to experience him for who he truly is. Now, this is what happened with Peter, you see. He thought he was pretty good until he failed miserably. He actually thought pretty highly of himself until he denied God three times, until he actually rejected Jesus but when, it, when he realized 
that Jesus accepted him, he started to realize who he was truly, and vice versa, he started to realize who God ultimately was. So when Peter embraced the truth about himself, he actually experienced the immeasurable power of God that was available to him through his love. Now I want to say this. Peter graciously recognizes the ways that you may have inherited futility from your forefathers. He recognizes that your past has an impact on you. But here's what he also recognizes in the same breath. Your past does not define you. And you should not hide behind your past and make excuses. I am this way because this is how I was raised. This just runs in the family. The reality is here, we can go to God, not playing the game, and saying, God, this is who I am. I have sin. I have weaknesses. And you can do that And you can be freed from the futility inherited from your forefathers because God is the God. He is now your Father who transcends your earthly fathers. You have a new identity now that trumps the old self. The hope of your future trumps the futility of your past, you see. So you are not defined by your past. You're not defined by the futility that you inherited. What you are defined by is the love of God who embraces you for everything that you are, who loves you eternally. And I think in that interaction, you come to know yourself, you come to see God for who he truly is, and you experience his love, and that is the beginnings of pursuing holiness, becoming like him. Knowing this love means that we hear the command to be holy not as a duty. How do we hear the command to be holy as children of God who are loved? We hear it as an invitation. It's not a duty. Perhaps some of you think, oh, be holy. That means I can't watch this movie or I can't do that anymore. The reality is, when you know the love of God and you know that he loves you infinitely, the command to be holy is an invitation into his family, into his fold, where he has made all things new and given you living hope. So I pray, I pray, that you will know the love of God and you will make it your life's aim to become more and more convinced of his love for you. So in closing, a couple of questions I want to present to you. Do you make it your life's aim to know God's love for you? Is this a high priority for you? I don't know. Well, then the answer is no. The reality is most of us go to God and we 
pray to him with things that we need. And we respond to him out of things that we think will benefit us. We tend to think pragmatically. But I want to ask you, how much of a priority is it for you to know the love of God? Paul prays this in Ephesians 3, that you would know the love of God which surpasses knowledge. How much is your life marked by a desire to know God's love for you? Number two, is the pursuit of holiness your defining purpose? Does this shape your pursuit in Bible reading, for instance? Is the pursuit of holiness your defining purpose? Do you desire to be holy? Or are you driven by a bunch of pragmatic things? I need to get this, I need to do that, I need to become more this. Or are you driven primarily by a desire to become holy as God is holy? That's something to think about. And what I mean by does it shape your pursuit of Bible reading, oftentimes, I'm just going to go out on a whim here and say, part of the reason why we have difficulty in reading the Bible is because it seems like it doesn't connect with us. You have issues in life that you want answers to. And when I read the Bible, it just seems like, what is going on? It doesn't connect. Let me present a different approach to Bible reading and a different cause to become holy. Because becoming holy includes knowing how God thinks. It, become, it means understanding what God prioritizes. It, it includes understanding what God values and his wisdom. So if you're going to the Bible for answers to just practical issues, perhaps the reason why it's not connecting is because you're not driven by a desire to become holy as he is holy and to understand the way he thinks and to understand what he values, but you just want answers. Could that be a possibility? I commend that to you to consider. But when holiness now becomes your top priority in life, you don't necessarily want the answers or demand them the same way. What you're really in it for is to understand the mind of God, to understand his character, to see him for who he is. And as you see him and as you know him as this holy God, you become like him. If holiness is our defining purpose as a people of God, we will approach the scriptures very differently. You will approach your problems very differently. A lot of times we think, I have a problem with this. So I'll focus on this and find a solution. But the reality is, is God says, no, 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 no. Why don't you start back here and become like me? Think about what I think about. Value what I value. And maybe in that, as you are transformed and by his love, 
you will come to see that this is solved. This is, oh, now that I think the way God thinks about life and reality, all of a sudden this problem isn't there anymore. Now, I don't want to paint too overly of an idealistic picture about this. You know, wrap it up with a nice little box and a ribbon on top. (laughs) Go on your way, read a psalm, call me in the morning and pray, and all your problems will go away. But how about that? A lot of times we focus on the actions that we want to do or not do. Focus on the person you are becoming. And is it godly? For young people, teens, oftentimes you ask the wrong question. You ask, is this permissible? Where's the line and how far can I go up to it? That's the wrong question. You know why that's the wrong question? Because it doesn't focus on the person you're becoming. It doesn't consider knowing the love of God. And now your whole priority agenda radically changes. It focuses on what can I do and still get away with it rather than saying, how can I know God? And how does this knowledge of God now and my becoming like him, how does that shape the way I approach movies or music or whatever it might be, my clothes. The desire to become holy will radically shift your life in a number of different ways. So I urge you to consider, is this the defining purpose of your life, to become holy as he is holy? Are you more concerned about all the rights and wrongs and do's and don'ts? Or are you actually more concerned about who God is and the person you're becoming? Do you hear the pursuit of holiness primarily as duty or as an invitation? Another question you could ask is, do you have margins for sin? Do you know what I mean by that? Do you let sin creep in this far, but no, no further. I'll let my lust go this far. I'll look at women, but I won't, you know, look at any heavy-duty stuff. So it's okay because I'm just going this far, but I'm not going this far. That's margins for sin. Are there places in your life where you've just kind of let sin hang around? It's okay to let it creep in this far. But at least it's not this far. That's the wrong attitude. That sees holiness as a duty, not as an invitation. When we truly understand the love of God and we're transformed by who he is, we want to become like him. Which means we're not asking the question, how far is too far? We're asking, I don't want any of it. God help us, amen? Let's close with that. Father God, we just pray that you would help us to know you, 
to know who you are and to be transformed into your image. We pray, Lord, that we would become holy as you are holy. Help us to realize that you have removed every obstacle in our path. As great as our past might be, as great as the obstacles are, we are not defined by them, and I praise you for that. I just ask, Lord, that you would help us. Help us to hear the call to holiness as an invitation, not as a duty. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.